The next lecture in this series is next Monday, same time, same station. Next Monday. I said this Monday. In the quaint part of the country where I come from, next Monday is referred to as this Monday. Uh, and the speaker is Paul Needham, uh, formerly Astor Curator of Printed Books and Binding at the, printed, at the Pierpont Morgan Library, and uh, now uh, Director of the Book Department at Sotheby's, talking about early printed Bibles. This is our religious... Uh, this is uh, our Easter season of lectures. Yes, indeed. All right, enough. Uh, our speaker this evening is David McKittrick, who, according to my trustee, 300 and counting, has uh, spoken here uh, five times before. Most recently, in April 1989, on print, principle, and profit, priorities in the earlier years of the Cambridge University Press. The first time he spoke here was back in the 70s, and it was called Libraries at Cambridge. His titles clearly are getting more complex and more interesting, and certainly much more fun to do posters about. <laughs> David McKittrick is librarian of Trinity College, Cambridge, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him back for his sixth appearance to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. Thank you very much, Terry. I'd forgotten it was six. Maybe that's a good sign, rather like growing up to forget about the years in between. Well, I've enticed you here rather shamelessly by quoting a mixture of St. Matthew, St. Luke, and the late Cecil Northcott Parkinson. So I thought it was only reasonable that I should add further to this reading list with a quotation from the latest annual report of a large publishing firm. Various initiatives have now been taken which aim to consolidate and build up the improvement during 1990. Negotiations were begun in 1989 concerning the acquisition by the press of the old established Bible and prayer book publisher Aaron Spotswood. The discussions were concluded successfully and the press formally acquired the stock, publishing rights and goodwill of this imprint on the 2nd of January 1990 together with the unique title of Queen's Printer, a title going back to the 16th century and held by the Eyre family and their successors since 1769. The press, as the oldest Bible publisher in the world, should be able to derive benefit from these several advantages as it contemplates appropriate measures to celebrate the fourth centenary of the publication of its first Bible in 1591. Well, this annual report, you will have guessed, is a public document, not one for internal circulation, hence the choice of vocabulary and phrasing. The publisher, of course, is Cambridge University Press. And I'm afraid that New York, like many other cities in the States, will certainly not be spared the publicity machine of the marketers over the next few months. So, before they get here, it seemed to be an appropriate time to consider the 17th century Bible trade in the first century or so after that opening shot in 1591. We might also remember that this book lies at the centre of the colonial experience in this country, just as it lies at the centre of religious experience in England. 
uh, and it doesn't need David Hall to remind us to put this kind of perspective into the history of the book in Britain or the history of the book in America. We also don't need to be reminded that until the 20th century and Mao Zedong, the Bible was the world's bestseller by a very long way. But the printed Bible offers several paradoxes which between them enable us to grasp more clearly the nature of the relationship between text, whether in its verbal, visual, physical or social form, book trade and reader. These paradoxes are the product of a series of commonplaces. First, not only is the Bible by far the most commonly found title of any book to be found in the hands of anyone, individual or family, owning a book in the early modern period. It's recorded in and survives as far more copies than any other great 17th, that other great 17th century bestseller, the annual almanac. Moreover, unlike almanacs, which change in some degree, however small in practice, each year, the text of any version, once established, whether as the Geneva Bible or the King James Bible, is popularly, but mistakenly supposed, never to have been changed after the 1570s or after 1611. Secondly, while almanacs do indeed change each year, several authors offering even traditions of factual or fanciful information and different predictions that they simply mingle one with another and muddle like a huge jigsaw puzzle, their form and their format of almanacs was rigidly defined. Sheet almanacs were just that, to be stuck up on the wall, large broadsides. The other two formats, the so-called sorts and blanks, both small octavos. The blanks, incidentally the predecessor of our modern pocket diary, were equally tightly defined by size and by typography. Between them, Whatever the variation in content, these three forms, broadside, sort, and blank, remained the only ones available for the whole of the 17th century and for much of the 18th. In dimensions and in paper quality, a factor of crucial importance in establishing the distinction between different economic and social levels in other parts of the book trade, these alternatives were the same available to the whole nation, regardless of their position or disposable income. The only difference lay in their bindings or in the number that an individual might choose to buy. If we look at other widely sold kinds of books, a different pattern emerges. Street ballads. Up to four street ballads printed on a single sheet were sold in vast numbers, tens of thousands. But their market can in no way be described as possessing that diversity of effort or diversity of appearance as for almanacs. The serious, moneyed collector, such as Samuel Pepys, was an exception. Most street almanacs, was, sorry, street ballads, were sold to poor people in the streets. In a different way, the market for school books, whether it's ABCs, Latin grammars, or catechisms, to take education no further up the scale, was equally restricted, defined by particular age groups, and by the requirements also for particular formats. And so, to retreat or to revert to Bibles. Alone of the most widely sold publications in the 17th century, a single text was offered in a range of forms that catered for every expression of religious activity or preference, every pocket, every shelf, 
every circumstance, every taste. From the 32-mo New Testament printed by John Leggett in the early 1590s to the huge lectern folios printed in the second half of the 17th century, both private and public requirements had to be met with one text. The format and the binding that clothed individual copies moreover expressed decisions and options that were central to what, by the end of the 17th century, has been identified as a consumer revolution in which the common or shared element of mass market goods identifies the consumer and makes clear both his aspirations and place in society. Although it's yet to be properly examined by bibliographers or indeed by historians with a bent for social and economic history, it seems plain that in the 17th century we can perceive in the Bible trade and in a few other examples of books generally broadly devotional such as The Whole Duty of Man the bibliographical evidence of that movement. From what Tim Breen, writing in another context about American portraiture and taste for different fabrics for dresses and so forth, has described as elite consumption towards a consumer society where a mass market of middling incomes defined as perhaps a million people by the end of the 17th century identified itself by the purchase of specific luxury goods, whether cloth, China or family portraits. In this, there is a bibliographical approach. The history of the book looks for common elements, but we do so in ways beyond those which bibliographers have been most closely and most efficiently concerned. The verbal patterns of textual bibliography, the establishment of authorial intentions in sometimes rather a difficult sense, the concentration on bindings more noticeable for their ostentation than for their attributes of ordinariness and repeated similarity from one copy to the next. In some respects, as so often, one way has been pointed out by Graham Pollard, who not only drew attention to that essential of a consumer society, the catalogue of books, multiple identical objects offered for sale, widely distributed amongst potential customers, but he also alluded all too briefly to the phenomenon of a new kind of fixed-price book catalogue in the later part of the 17th century. But I think he missed one other kind of catalogue, again from publishing stationers, again inserted at the backs of their books. The catalogue of books at fixed prices and specifically bound books. The earliest of these that I found are several issued by John Starkey, the London stationer, in the late 1660s and early 1670s. And his list as a publisher was strong in travel books and in law, but it also offered the odd book in chemistry, a selection of works relating to continental history, Roman Catholicism. In such a list, sold by a fixed price in bindings that at least cost the same to produce from copy to copy, we can perceive the further standardization of book production, part of a process affecting the appearance of books that affected reading almost as much as the invention of printing itself. Starkey's 1670s catalogues, offering bound books at fixed prices, was devoted wholly to secular books. There was no popular devotion and, of course, there were no Bibles or prayer books, which were part of a monopoly 
managed as they had been for generations by three beneficiaries, the King's Printers, the University Printer at Oxford and the University Printer at Cambridge. But we can take this standardization of presentation much further back to, for example, the quarto Bibles printed at London and Cambridge in the first quarter of the 17th century. The standardization was not inspired by the stationer, but by customers' expectations for a very distinct kind of book. For example, a Bible bound in simply tooled calf, sometimes rather badly tooled, sometimes with bosses, clasps, and metal furniture, that would give it protection as it was laid open daily on a table and made it clearly identifiable as it lay elsewhere during the rest of the day. The family Bible in the early 17th century was so often so different from other books in the family library. In other words, it was an object to be seen both inside and outside. It was most certainly not a book to sit on the shelf with others, where its knobs, its corners, its spikes would certainly rapidly damage other books. Well, I've deliberately drawn your attention to the outsides of books rather than their insides because they are now easily forgotten, especially in a world that has seen so much repair and restoration of old books, particularly with the emergence of serious collecting as a pastime from the mid-18th century onwards. And with the needs of the institutional libraries of the last one and a half centuries, in most libraries today, most of the early printed books available have been rebound at least once since their first binding, and many more than twice. Whatever value that may, that may have in illuminating our understanding of the ways in which successive subsequent generations have viewed past literature, it can't help obscuring our understanding of the way in which books were perceived, read, understood, and handled when they were first published, or the motivations of those responsible for establishing how and in what shape, in what form, particular books were to be manufactured and offered to the public. <coughs> well, you'll notice that I've said so far nothing about the author and his or her text. That's not because I believe that there is no connection between the verbal and the visual aspects of an author's text, but because I want rather to approach this relationship in a way that makes clear how vital it can be, at least in some circumstances. As so often, there's a danger of generalizing on the basis of too little evidence or too small a sample. Hence, while what I have to say this afternoon may enhance our perception of the relationship in some other parts of the trade, it cannot, in all its specifics, be related directly to the instances in more general experience. We may remember the reader that went to the university library and asked how to find the Bible and realised the best place to look up in the catalogue was under God. Um, but notwithstanding that, there was a text, there is a text, that is a sequence of particularly chosen words and punctuation divided up into books, chapters and verses and so forth that can, for our purposes, be described as in some sense authorial. It was the text established in the case of the Geneva Bible, by a team of translators led by William Whittingham in Geneva, first published in 1568. And in the case of the authorised, or King James Version, by another team involving Lancelot Andrews and the professors of Hebrew at Oxford and Cambridge, first published in 1611. In the sense that these men established the word, 
as understood or at least received by the English-speaking world, most of the 17th century, sorry, for most of the 17th century, they may be counted as authors. And I want to focus on the authorised version rather than the Geneva version, but at the same time remember that the Geneva Bible remained continuously popular for many years after 1611 and the first appearance of the King James Version. Its Roman type even passed into the language. If you look up Geneva in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll see that one of the meanings given under it, or one of the uses given under it, is Geneva print, meaning Roman type. And this transition from black letter to Roman in Bible printing is something that has yet to be properly explored. For the Puritan inclined, it was indeed the text preferable to the King James Version. And in this context, these small private formats, 12 by octavo and so forth, were more appropriate than folios. Only three folio editions of the Geneva Bible were printed in England between 1611 and 1640. For folio editions, the King James Bible commanded the market, a market defined for 30 years principally by the needs of churches for lectern Bibles, where only the authorised or King James Version was permitted, and by the expectations of biblical scholarship where the folio format became the accepted mode of issuing new translations, new revisions, whether in 1611, 1629, 1638. The Geneva text, at least according to the STC, was last printed in London in 1615. But of course it was by no means the last occasion it was printed for the 17th century English book trade. For years afterwards, the Amsterdam press provided plenty of copies on a scale which is difficult now to appreciate because of the failure of these presses to distinguish between editions by changing dates, a lot of false dating, by putting false names on their title pages. The deputies of Christopher Barker, for example, survived in some mysterious way well after 1640. The complications of false imprints, overseas editions, rival versions, even the suggestion that some of these Bibles may have been stereotyped, all emphasize a single point, that the market for Bibles was not only large, but that despite the monopoly positions of the London, Cambridge and later Oxford presses, it was supplied to a very great extent from the Low Countries. How far, and it is no more than a possibility, the London trade connived at this overseas injection into a trade whose suppliers, the printers, had a vested interest in keeping the number of presses down and so the amount of work for those presses up, and how much they had investments in the overseas presses is so far by no means clear, but at least in one case, Robert Barker in the 1620s, we know that his overseas interests were more than might ordinarily be expected of the import-export trade. One principle is very clear, though, until the early 1640s, that whereas the Queen's or King's printer enjoyed the right to print Bibles by a form of crown copyright, whose origins are by no means clear, the Cambridge Press also had the right to print Bibles, thanks to the charter granted by King Henry VIII in 1534, giving the university the right to print all manner of books. Thus, for a market potentially encompassing the entire literate population of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, and the American colonies, 
The position was not really one of monopoly, as it was made to appear, but one of competition. It was, moreover, competition on a larger scale than the simple rehearsal of the putative market might suggest. The Bible is a long book. The first edition of the King James Bible required about 370 sheets. The text printed in double columns, 59 lines to a column. Even with smaller type, such as that in the Geneva Bible, printed by Robert Barker only four years earlier, in 1607, some 270 sheets were required for each copy. Moreover, paper costs for any impression of a book consisting of not more than the limit set for most books by a conventional day's work, and the word conventional doesn't mean the same as normal, 1,250 copies, the paper would account in this sort of edition size for about half the financial outlay. The rest was taken up with composition and press time. Not surprisingly, it was eventually realised that by thinking of stock in terms of sheets rather than in terms of copies, and by printing stock so as to keep a sufficiency for fresh copies without necessarily having regard to the implied exactitude of editions, it was easy to avoid waste. But the consequent mixed editions not only fly in the face of conventional bibliographical units, STC and wing numbers, they also imply typographical control, form by form and sheet by sheet, so that each resetting will complete the sheet at the same point each time. In other words, the typography however we look at it, whether it's in terms of the number of words on the page or the relationship of sheet to sheet, was critical for the successful prosecution of Bible printing. Not only for the sake of the readers, choosing between formats, between larger or smaller types, between Roman type and black letter, but also for the sake of the saving in the most expensive element of the manufacturing cost, the cost of paper. The focus of production was then critically on typography. But not only for these so-called mixed editions, as we would describe them. For example, we may take one edition of the Bible printed in isolation, in the sense that the printer was printing it for the first time and was not to follow it with another as soon as the stock was exhausted. The example is a timely one, and you will have guessed it's that 1591 Bible. published on the 29th of May. It had taken from about the 25th of September last year. Not very good progress, you might say, except that we know Leggett, the printer, was also working at other books at the same time. And we can also surmise that the Bible would certainly require more time for proofreading than many other books. John Leggett's compositor in 1590-91 was a man named Edward Smith, came from London, he agreed with Leggett in September to a reward of 50 extra copies of his Octavo Bible on one condition. And it's a condition of considerable interest, and that is, so far as I'm aware, of a kind not recorded elsewhere, at least in early English printing. Though it seems so sensible and central to the project's well-being that it cannot have been unique. The agreement specified what paper was to be used this governing the size and the quality of the book, and also revealingly set a mark against which the finished Bible was to be judged. And I can do no better than quote from the records of the University Court 
before which Smith subsequently gave evidence against his employer. And Smith alleged, and this is a late 16th century transcript of the court record, if he, Edward Smith, being hired servant to the said legate in the trade or occupation of a printer, and especially being a composer or setter of letters for the printing press of him, the said legate, should be his counting of the said Bible, bring the said Bible, which the said legate lately imprinted or caused to be imprinted, into so many sheets of Rochelle paper as that Bible is brought unto which was printed at London Anno Domini 1590 by the printers of London. Viz, if he, Smith, should so compass or set the letters, pages or columns of that Bible aforesaid, which he, Leggett, imprinted or caused to be imprinted now of late, as it should not contain any more sheets of paper than that which was imprinted at London for the printers of London. Secondly, the said legate did deliver paper to the said Smith, affirming it to be Rochelle paper, such paper as he legate would, would the said Bible, so by him imprinted of late, as is aforesaid, should be finished in by him Smith or imprinted in. You can get the gist of it. <laughs> the aforesaid Smith had fulfilled the condition aforesaid, viz., hath brought the said Bible lately by him, the said legate, imprinted, into as few sheets of Rochelle paper, of such paper as he legate, would it should be imprinted in or fewer than that, that which was imprinted at London in 1590, and the said Bible of which the said legate promised to give 50 copies to the, said, to the said Smith is fully finished and ended by the said Smith according to the intent and meaning of the said legate and Smith in the aforesaid promise of giving 50 Bibles to the said Smith by him. <laughs> well, the drift of it is clear. The... Um, court transcriber obviously had quite a time of it. Smith achieved his aim. He produced a satisfactory match with the London Bible in that respect. The number of sheets he used, and he managed one sheet less, was up to Leggett's expectations, and he also offered a slightly different page design. Michael Black has drawn attention to Leggett's use of space capitals for the page heads, where London printers had preferred upper and lower case, but generally the orchestration of the nominal type used for the London and the Cambridge editions alike was remarkable more for its similarity than for its differences. Competition between London and Cambridge remained limited to two parties, university printers and the royal printers, until the 1640s. But the textual tradition of the King James Version became quickly muddied. The 1591 Bible, of course, was a Geneva Bible. The 1611 first edition of the King James Bible was printed in London and it was rapidly found to contain inaccuracies. And these and others were put right principally in two major revisions at Cambridge in 1629 and 1638. One error, introduced perhaps or probably deliberately by a disaffected printer in 1631, has remained celebrated in a London Bible, the so-called Wicked Bible, Thou Shalt Commit Adultery. But there were others causing less scandal in themselves that produced a book that was almost always less than perfection expected, or indeed than the translators intended in 1611. Punctuation, spelling, italicization, and grammar were all amended at different times on no authority, quite apart from the straightforward spotting of what seemed to be errors. 
When, therefore, the Bible patent collapsed in the mid-1640s, in the middle, the middle of the Civil War, and became a prize available more widely to the London book trade, beginning with William Bentley in 1646, there was much improvement to be looked for. In 1641, Michael Spark had attacked the Cambridge University printers, amongst others, and he also attacked the London ones, complaining of high prices, not only of Bibles, but also of law books. He'd also spoken very little about the quality of the text to which such attention had been paid at Cambridge only three years previously, in 1638. But now one reformer put forward a proposal, which is of some interest in the 1640s, of a kind that was to be paralleled, so far as I know, only in the manner in which the 1662 Book of Common Prayer was attached to the Act of Uniformity passed by Parliament in that year. For the university printer at Cambridge in 1655, John Field, the position was additionally complicated. Field had been noticeably successful in his career as printer to Parliament, and he managed even to have a place of some honour in Oliver Cromwell's funeral procession, despite a less than glamorous career as a master of textual perfection. For Field, as for many of his contemporaries, the theological disputes of Cambridge Dons, uh, which were the bread and butter of the Cambridge book trade, were rather less interest than his editions of the Bible. And with the collapse of royal authority in the mid-1640s, the dispersal of the king's printers, um, the exclusive rights of the king's printers and of the university lapsed. The market was rapidly flooded with Dutch-printed imports, and for a few years the stationers' company in London itself issued editions. More traditionally, we might say the printer in Finsbury, William Bentley, whom I mentioned a few moments ago, took up the challenge to print this most consistently saleable book in the whole of the trade, at a price that comfortably undercut that charged by the stationers. But this loosening of the trade was full of dangers. An offensive monopoly was indeed seen to have been removed in the Civil War, but on the other hand, a multiplicity of editions could breed an equal multiplicity of errors. No book required such textual conformity for its authority, yet no book for a few years was more common property. The other great works of biblical scholarship at this time, Roger Daniel's edition of the Septuagint, uh, and the work by people such as Henry Hammond and John Lightfoot, and above all, Walton's great six-volume polyglot edition of the 1650s, were each in their way manifestations of a new importance accorded to the text of the scriptures, for which it rapidly became clear some central distributive and textual authority was essential. This, in turn, could be viewed in two ways. On the one hand, while it was recognised that the 1638 Cambridge revised text was unequal, the Bible was never better printed than at Cambridge by Mr. Buck and Mr. Daniel, said one commentator. There seemed in the minds of some to be cause for a revision. On the other, the need for an approved controlling text suggested a unitary authority that overrode the received multipartite character of the printed word produced at the hands of different compositors, re readers and pressmen working in their various establishments at, Oxford, Cambridge, sorry, at London and Cambridge, not Oxford yet. 
And so there was a proposal put forward that there may be a fair copy of the last translation of the Bible engrossed either in parchment or vellum in a full character which may be compared with the original by four or five ministers and so kept at Sion College in London as an authentic record for orthography so truly and critically written that hereafter a letter shall not be altered. That so all people upon any doubt may have recourse to the original to prove whether their printed copies varied or not. Whatever its theological merits, though even on those grounds it might be debated, such a concept of a single authoritative and unchanging text flies in the face of the mechanics of 17th century printing. Indeed, we may remind ourselves that the concept of the printing press as being capable of such monolithic authority in every respect is one that took root well after the invention of printing as the many examples of the 15th century printed Bibles, we'll hear about them next week, amended in manuscript whether Latin or vernacular, make it clear. Belief in the exactly repeatable statement, however much it was and has recently sometimes been accepted in some circles, we may remind ourselves that one of the principal selling points for the introduction of stereotype plates for both biblical and secular work in the first years of the 19th century was to create just such regular and authoritative copies. But such a manuscript copy as that described by this reformer in about 1650 already existed of the 1611 authorised version. We haven't seen it, it doesn't survive now. But by the mid-1650s, we gather, interlineations and obliterations had defaced what had once been fair and added fuel to the demands for a fresh start. And so in January 1653, the House of Commons resolved that a bill should be introduced to authorise a new translation at the hands of the translators to be named. Such a project would, of course, also have provided the opportunity to remove any taint of episcopacy. It would also have ended at a stroke the row that broke out among the London printers, consequence on the end of the King's printer's monopoly. When, in 1646, the authorised King James text was first printed by William Bentley, it was claimed that no other printer would agree to produce a new and cheap edition proposed by the Westminster Assembly. Bentley's newfound and lucrative trade, bolstered by contracts to supply the army, was rewarded by ostracisation by the Stationers' Company. By both 1649 and in 1652, his special status was, however, confirmed in legislation. By 1648, a confused situation threatened to become chaotic, with editions either of the Bible or the New Testament, not only from Bentley, but also from the Stationers' Company, a consortium of two other booksellers, people called Robert White and Thomas Brudenell, false editions purporting to be by the Cambridge University printer Roger Daniel, but which are certainly not, and for the first time, a quarto edition from the man who became university printer at Cambridge, John Field. I return now to Field. Four years later, he produced another duodecimo edition that vaunted on its title page his appointment, Printer to the Parliament of England. From then until 1664, there was hardly a year when he was not seemingly responsible for one or more editions. His last appeared in 1668 when he died. As a Bible printer, he was to prove an innovator, and he made important contributions to the well-known forms of presentation. But... Though in the end Field attained respectability and even respect, 
His earliest efforts were irresponsible and damaging to those on whose trust he preyed. Field's principal critic, William Kilburn, was both partial and accurate in his accusations. With pharisaical zeal, Kilburn defended the interests of Bentley's Finsbury Press in 1659 in an outspoken attack on the inaccuracy of Field's texts. By then, there was ample evidence of neglect on a scale that was nothing short of scandalous. Kilburn's pamphlet was, however, one further, only one further broadside in the battle that had involved, in the last few years, Parliament, the Council of State, and the Cambridge authorities. By April 1656, when the Council of State heard Bentley's case, Field's partner, Henry Hills, another printer to, the, to Parliament, had been implicated as well. And their copyright in the English Bible had been entered in no less than the stationer's register the month before on no less Cromwell's own authority, the unique instance of his wielding his authority in this way. Though much in this argument was made of inaccuracies, an argument that was wielded almost traditionally in disputes concerning copy, the issue was commercial as much as textual. Cromwell's entry in the stationer's register had only served to heighten the crisis in the book trade. By legislation of 1649, anyone engaged in printing or selling the Bible might now be sued by Field and Hughes in the hills. And yet this seems to implicate not only the Finsbury Press, but also the stationer's company and the university printer Roger Daniel, who likewise had invested in Bibles. Cromwell's act had left printers with books half complete and with stocks on their hand not the way to win friends. The trades quarrel was with both Field and Hills, but it was also inevitably with Cromwell. But the responsibility for a series of abominably erroneous texts was Field's. His appointment at Cambridge as university printer making at first apparently no difference, save that it provided a refuge from two pressing embarrassments in London. Kilburn's attack of 1659 was already known of in Cambridge a few months before. And it was known of at, probably at the time that the university elected its new university printer, Kilburn's victim, John Field. Kilburn spoke of a 1653 Bible printed in London just a few months before Field was elected university printer as not only being very small to carry in pockets, but also inaccurate. He printed two duodecimos in 1655, another duodecimo in 1656, and octavo in 1657, the first Bible that he printed at Cambridge. And there was a duodecimo printed by Field and Hills together in 1656. The lamentable quality of Field's texts was no secret. In November 1656, it had been the subject of inquiry by the House of Commons, a special attention being paid then to the defective 1653-24 edition, of which Field admitted to having printed about 2,000 copies. It was almost certainly many more. Field's own stock of Bibles, some 7,900 copies, was secured pending the House of Commons Committee's further consideration. By the following January, 1657, the investigation by the House of Commons had become more particular as the Bible Committee turned its attention to particular faults, not only in the text printed by Field, but also in a recent edition from Hill's Press. It was possible to claim that most faults were but slight, 
commas, full stops, italics, or odd letters. I suppose Greg might have called them accidentals, though he would have risked the wrath of the House of Commons. Um, It remained that the text had become neglected and consequently corrupt. The committee considered a list of 2,000 errata alleged by the stationers' company against one of Hill's Bibles, while it was said one Robinson, a Scotchman, corrected to his highness press, a very busy person and something in his own opinion and skill in the tongues, arraigned not only the recent Cambridge editions, but also all other recent ones as well. Field's stock was impounded by the whole house the following June, and Field himself was called to present himself in November, a confrontation he escaped, thanks to an adjournment of business between the end of June and late January following. The dissolution of Parliament in 1657 saved his skin. It also, though, brought to an untimely end efforts underway for a new translation of the English Bible, one which promised fresh linguistic accuracy. It was certainly to have involved at least Brian Walton, Edwin Castle, Samuel Clarke, and Ralph Cudworth, an impressive lineup. Um, and it also promised the cessation of an embarrassment of error-ridden reprints or new editions of the King James Version. The scale of Field's business, the extent of the mistakes, made, however, control impossible. In 1657, the House of Commons still considered it realistic to seize copies of the offending edition of 1653, though it had to acknowledge that many more had already gone into circulation. Kilburn claimed to have been told that 20,000 copies had been printed of Hills and Fields 1656 Octavo. Altogether, he told the Vice-Chancellor at Cambridge, some 80,000 copies had been printed of four faulty editions. Parliament might seize copies, London stationers might decline to deal in them, but this could not prevent their dispersal through channels other than the ordinary bookshops, through country fairs, markets, bookbinders, petty chapmen, all offering alternative means of sale to customers perhaps unused to bookshops or to spending very much on a book. Kilburn didn't restrict his campaign to pointing out textual errors and omissions. He also took exception to the fact that marginal references had been discarded as a means of cost-cutting, that Field and Hills had employed an English corrector, sorry, not an English corrector, but one Mr Robinson, And in his intemperate excitement at this foreign spectre who had sought so assiduously to justify himself before Parliament, he muddled his victim's name, one Mr Robinson, a Scotch rabbi, with William Robertson, who qualified for Kilburn's description only as an Edinburgh MA, now settled in London and teaching Hebrew. He was to become a familiar name on the title page of many books printed at Cambridge by Field and his successors. Field was thus upbraided by Parliament, criticised by the Stationers' Company, attacked by Kilburn in Cambridge, and the object of public and racist denunciation in London. Yet he retained his patent to print the Bible. And he did so long after the Restoration without being disciplined, as had those those, has been those responsible for printing the Wicked Bible in 1631. Such an achievement does perhaps lend some credibility to Kilburn's allegations of bribery. For, as it is credibly reported, Mr Hills and Mr Field have several times affirmed that they are engaged to pay £500 a year to some whose names, out of respect to them, I forbear to mention. The rewards were high, and thanks to the rights of search and seizure that Field and Hills now enjoyed, 
they were able to impose by force their own monopoly. Under Field, the price of Bibles and singing psalms was said to have been forced up. He brought to an end the work of William Bentley, his principal rival, by the simple but effective expedient of proceeding with some soldiers to Bentley's shop in August 1656, and did carry away the form and materials for printing a part of the New Testament and seized the sheets to his highness' use, as if some was the same was scandalous. Further harassment threatened Bentley and his family with ruin. And yet, within a few weeks of this episode, there appeared in the London newspaper, Mercurius Politicus, among notices for missing persons, stolen horses, lozenges, and new books, an advertisement of a disingenuousness that few can have failed to recognise. And I'm ashamed to say that it's the first newspaper advertisement ever issued by Cambridge University Press. Whereas, for the space of about 12 years past, the printing of the Bible lay in common, so that every man presumed to print it at pleasure, which was never permitted before in any other country, the magistrate in all states and kingdoms ever committing it to the care of persons of his own appointment, it so fell out, through the arbitrary and licentious custom of printing, that many hundreds of very gross errors are escaped in the common impressions now abroad, to the great scandal of religion and government and abuse of the people. For remedy whereof, this is field writing, Due care hath been had to settle the printing of the Holy Scriptures in an orderly way for time to come, and there is now a Bible printed, finished, by His Highness Cromwell's special command, free from those errors that are crept into many of the other impressions, it being examined, corrected, and amended according to the original manuscript copy of the translators. And to that end, that a book of so sacred concernment may be exactly and truly printed for the future, there are two correctors kept to correct all Bibles that should be printed hereafter. And over and above, there is a very learned person appointed by His Highness carefully to revise every sheet before it be wrought off at the press. This may, we assume, be Robertson. Thus, a university printer advertised his reform without confessing his misdeeds. Concealed safely in anonymous seclusion behind his partner, the Bentleys, in their press in Finsbury, were still at annoyance two years later when the stationers heard a complaint that Field and Hills had seized a form of type as well as the bar and spindle of their press following the discount Barker as the royal printers. They retained their own position as London Bible printers sufficiently long to extract from Oxford a yet further agreement to the University of Cambridge's right to print Bibles on a continued payment of £80 a year. This agreement, coming less than six weeks after the restoration in May, was perhaps meant as an insurance against restitution, but it resulted in little printing in London. Much more importantly, it ensured for Fields Cambridge Press continuing dominance in the book trade, or in the Bible trade, and in particular it protected him from the danger of competition. For the most ambitious of all his projects, the large folio Bible of 1659-60. Fields' poor reputation has lived on not least thanks to Isaac Disraeli and his undocumented allegation in the 19th century that he was said to have received from the independents a bribe of £1,500 to corrupt the crucial texts in Acts on the making of deacons, changing we to ye in the phrase whom we may appoint. But Field and others, both in London and in Scotland, had simply followed the 1638 Cambridge carefully revised copy, itself a mistake that would have been countenanced neither by the university printers nor by Archbishop Lord had it been seen in time. 
So error led to embarrassment and to false accusation. Field's Bibles, especially his early ones, were indeed grossly inaccurate, but there's no evidence that he deliberately tampered with the text in such a manner. He attained his position in London by bullying. It was one of power rather than respect. He used his powers not only to bring Bentley's press to an end, but also to attempt in 1658 to end Roger Daniels' now controversial career for good. That's his predecessor's university printer, the man who had been sacked. Within the Stationers' Company, he commanded only limited respect. His Bible printing, poor, became an encumbrance on the English stock, whose members, sympathetic to profit, could not easily countenance inaccuracy and poor standards in the face of cheap Dutch imports. There was even some doubt as to Fields and Hill's honesty in their returns to the stock for whom they printed, and for whom during a short period they printed as many as 24,000 copies of the singing psalms by Sternhold and Hopkins each year. But by the time that Kilburn's strictures on the smaller format Bibles were published in 1659, Field was well advanced in Cambridge on the project that was to recover his reputation amongst his contemporaries and provide an honourable foundation for it amongst generations to come. Work on his large folio Bible was authorised by John Worthington as Vice-Chancellor in 1658. Its production meant the delay of other projects on the press, and it may have been the reason why the local booksellers William Morden and John Neeland had to seek out alternative printers in London for their work. But for John Worthington, Vice-Chancellor, this hardly mattered. For a fair, large letter, large paper with fair margin, etc., there was never, bi- never such a Bible in being, he enthused. Certainly it was large, with its double pica type, even for the ordinary text. It was also the first folio edition of the authorised King James Version, of a size suitable for the lectern or for the amplest of private libraries, since the black letter edition issued by the King's printer in 1640. It still perpetuated the mistake in Acts chapter 6, made in 1638, muddled between we and ye, and to that extent it didn't altogether vindicate Field's reputation. The error was finally found was made good in his later and less ostentatious editions. Bible printing was looked on in Cambridge with mixed feelings. It was profitable, certainly, for the university printer, but it also laid the university printer and the university uh, bare to accusations of profiteering and inaccuracy and an unscholarly approach. As another vice-chancellor put it, the university's privilege is looked on as a trust for the public good, and their printing of these books will force the Londoners to print something tolerably true who otherwise, looking merely at gain, will not care how corruptly they print. Witness the 200 blasphemies which Mr. Buck, one of the university printers, found in the London Bibles, and the millions of faults in their school books. But by the time that William Dillingham wrote this, the first Cambridge edition of the new 1662 Book of Common Prayer had been printed, as well as Octavo editions of the Bible and of the New Testament. The university's petition to King Charles II claimed that 10,000 copies had been prepared. Within a year, the range of books issued by Field suggests that the relationship of the Cambridge to the London printers printers had reverted approximately to the mutual forbearance and is nothing more and accommodation that had been seen before the Civil War. But the position, of course, became very 
different with Field's death. Field's reputation as a Bible printer founded in his own lifetime on the disparity between his claim to the King James text and the manifest inaccuracy of many of his editions, or at least many of the editions to which his name was put. The fact that these complaints receded after the Restoration didn't and doesn't affect this view. Yet as the publisher of a text available also in many editions printed overseas, imported and made available at prices that undercut those printed in England, he was innovative in the face of difficult, aggressive and surreptitious competition. His own imprint was pirated. He succeeded, moreover, in a noticeably conservative market. Whatever the quality of their texts, the small 24 edition of 1653 and, at the opposite extreme, the magnificent Lecton Bible of 1659-60, latterly embellished thanks to the enterprise of John Ogilby, were both responses to their time in that each identified fresh niches in the market. Though many of the copies of the Ogilby folio found their way into the larger private and institutional libraries, the edition also had the advantage of being the first folio edition of the authorised text in Roman letter since 1639-40. So too, the 1668 quarto, the so-called preaching Bible, thanks to its slim yet visible form, could hold up the book, it was quite clearly a Bible, but it weighed very little, marked a new departure. That was achieved not simply by using noticeably thinner paper, but also by reducing the type size from the pica used in the previous quarter of 1663 to non-pole. The number of sheets required was cut by one-third, a valuable achievement at a time when the British paper trade was ruined by the Great Fire. In the end, Field's earlier reputation had been so much forgotten that his name was perpetuated even on what he had not printed. His 1665 duodecimo Greek Bible was reissued by his successor in Cambridge without acknowledgement in 1684, the title page still showing Field's name, even though Field had been dead some years. Further sheets from the same edition appeared overseas. By 1743, indeed, opinion had swung so far towards Field that a casual observer convinced himself that Hayes' reissue, not Field's work, was a fraud, and a poor one at that. But, as... Hayes took care to print it page for page, and I suppose line for line with Fields, so he put Fields' name on it and dated it as Fields was, 1665, by which he put a cheat upon the world, his letter being not so clear, nor his book so correct as Fields is. I've spoken of copyright infringements, dishonest market manipulation, machine-breaking, false claims to accuracy, and gross inaccuracy. Every feature of the 17th century book trade can be paralleled today with this newspaper history in New York City. <laughs> to that extent, at least, the book trade has not changed in three or four centuries. Though the modern university printers, I think, don't usually go about their business in this manner. But as we are encouraged by advertising by parties, by radio, by trade cards in shops, and salesmen to participate in the May 1591 celebrations, encouraged by a facsimile reprint of that same Bible, as well as by sweatshirts, I'm sorry I haven't got one, <laughs> mugs, I didn't dare bring it in case it was broken in the luggage, ballpoint pens, that mine ran out, plastic carrier bags, which I could manage to fit into my pocket,
That's what you'll see on the streets in New York and in the subway. It is as well to reflect on other historical and bibliographical matters. I've said nothing of the reasons why the Cambridge University printers forbore to print the Bible for 38 years after that first attempt in 1591. And this at a time when the market was increasing rapidly. But I do hope I've demonstrated a little of the complexity of the market, textually, typographically, economically, and, dare I say it, socially. In several senses, the Bible is a poor example of the ordinary book trade. A bestseller is, by definition, different. The Bible has a unique claim on the Christian society, quite unlike any other book. But in its confrontation of the rest of the book trade, whether in its manufacture, from editing to design to contemporary comment on typographical error, to illustration, of which I have said nothing at all, though I could have talked a long time about Ogilvy's Bible, to binding, or to sale and so on to reading, it repeatedly directs us in other bibliographical matters. And that, for the history of the book, is no bad thing. I regard the commercial fanfare of 1991 as rather a good opportunity for bibliographers to be heard. Thank you. I am, as you know, the proprietor myself of a considerable notion shop. I hadn't thought of plastic bags, but I will certainly do so. Perhaps we can continue this discussion in room 502. David, thank you very much.